Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's late. You've been out partying with friends. It's been a fun night, but you're hungry, and a handsome, charming young guy you met earlier offers you a lift to a late-night restaurant in his red jag. Do you go? My name is Laura Palmer. For more than 25 years, I was a producer in a big city newsroom. Now I live on an island, and I'm digging into stories I didn't have time to tell. This is season one of Island Crime, the case of Lisa Marie Young. If you live in the coastal community of Nanaimo, you will likely have heard about Lisa's disappearance. In the summer of 2002, she got into that red jag and was never seen again. Her story has become a sort of urban legend. But Lisa Marie Young is not a myth. There is at least some truth to the stories. My goal here is to sort out fact from fantasy. I'm beginning with an episode focused on Lisa Marie Young herself. She was a beautiful young lady. Uh, Every time I saw her, she was always dressed up so beautifully. Her her hair was long, and she always looked graceful to me, very uh, sophisticated, you might say. Oh, she's pretty feisty. She always was feisty. She was really good with her brothers, like, really good. So... She's like a little mummer to her brothers there. She always had nail polish. There was always sparkle in her nails. Loved doing her hair and had lots of makeup. She was just that type of teen that she really enjoyed her fashion and and she, it was her own. It was she didn't she didn't fly by the crowd. She led the crowd. Like in that sense, she she was fire. She had spark to her. In the episodes ahead, you'll hear about the night Lisa went missing and about the exhaustive search and extreme lengths Lisa's family and friends have taken to find her and keep her story alive. And I'll take you inside my search for answers about the most puzzling part of this story. If so many people on this island believe they know who is responsible for Lisa's disappearance, why has no one ever been arrested and why has her body never been found? This is episode one of Island Crime, season one. Who is Lisa Marie Young? If you're listening from outside of Canada, let me set the scene a little for you. Vancouver Island is the largest Pacific island anywhere east of New Zealand. This island isn't tropical, but we have the mildest climate in Canada. It's a place many people would love to call home, and the tourist types describe the tranquility, the pristine coastlines, the snow-capped mountain peaks, 
and the emerald forests. They use words like magical and magnificent, and that is all true. But there is another side to this island, a moody, misty, mysterious dark side as well. This podcast is haunted. I don't have visions, but I do feel the weight of two souls nearby as I piece together this story. They wake me up in the morning and drift through my mind as I go to sleep. One is Lisa Marie Young, the 21-year-old woman who vanished after getting into that red jag. No one I've spoken with believes she is still alive. Joanne passed away without knowing what happened to her daughter. This story is for them. I drive across the island to interview Carol Ann Bosma. We're meeting just around the corner from the Nanaimo nightclub where Lisa Marie Young spent her final night having fun with friends. The missing posters all say Lisa Marie, both names. But to Carol Ann and to most of her friends and family, it's simply Lisa. Carol Ann is Lisa's foster sister, a distinction she doesn't like to make. In her mind, Lisa is her sister, full stop. Carol Ann arrives with her two young twins, a boy and a girl. The little girl I learn is named for Lisa. A friend agrees to watch the pair while I chat with Carol Ann. Back in my newsroom days, this interview would have been conducted in an expensive studio designed for great sound. But now that I'm on my own, I record conversations in my old Honda hatchback. It's small and relatively soundproof. Carol Ann tucks herself into the passenger seat and tries to make herself comfortable. But she doesn't take off her winter jacket. It's like she's hoping she won't be stuck in here long with me. So my name's Carol Ann. I am Lisa's foster sister. I think I was around 17 when I met her and my youngest foster sister. Carol Ann's hair is pulled back into a tight ponytail. It's still wet. She looks tired and anxious. Now that could simply be because she's a mom to two toddlers. But as we begin to talk about Lisa, I know there is more than mummy fatigue happening here. Almost two decades later, Carol Ann is still traumatized by losing Lisa. It's weird because I don't think of her as foster sister. Uh, We definitely became like family. Um, So (laughs) it's hard. Like foster sister is just almost like a sister from another family. What was life like in that foster home? Just paint me a bit of a picture if you can. <laughs> Living with Lisa, you mean? Mm. She definitely was the older sister. She really looked out for us. She was very protective over us. She loved girl clothes and very, she had a very specific kind of taste that was her own. Like she, um, she worked at McDonald's and she, yeah, she loved to shop, but she never went to like your main clothing store. She went, she really, you know, kind of supported the local kind of smaller shop. She really enjoyed that, like, you know, finding really specific kind of clothes and, and wearing them and putting them together and lots of shoes, lots of boots, um, necklaces. She had a lot of necklaces, loved rings. She always had nail polish. There was always sparkle in her nails, loved doing her hair. And had lots of makeup. She was just that type of teen that she really enjoyed her fashion and 
and she, it was her own. It was she didn't she didn't fly by the crowd. She led the crowd, like in that sense. She she was fire. She had spark to her. She was just that girl. She was like a butterfly. She kind of I never really knew what was going to happen or where you're going to go with her or who you're going to cross paths with, you know. Um, but the people, you know, that she was closest to, like her closest friends were always kind. Like she had a really good group of people that loved her and she loved. And the crowd that she ran in was diverse because she was so diverse. She had different interests and, and for every interest, she had a group of friends. Caroline met Lisa in foster care in their late teens. But Lisa also has another family, the one she grew up with. I asked Caroline about Lisa's relationship with her brothers. She loved them. One of my last conversations was about them, actually. They'd had um, portraits taken. And um, so it was a picture of her uh, and her two brothers. And she was actually moving, like moving to a new place. She was talking about Brian and about how he was getting everything. She was just handing, like, she was, she's like, he's getting this and he's getting that and he's getting this and he's getting that. And I remember laughing because, like, it was just a spontaneous coffee with her and going, and me going, he gets the blue set of plates because they were so pretty and she's like yep and I'm like oh I'm so jealous and we start talking about the brothers because like out of the three foster sisters we're all actually the oldest sibling of our sibling group and we all have brothers she was talking about how her goals she had a like 10-year plan her plan in life was to include them especially her youngest brother's special needs and um she had said you know, she was setting Brian up with her stuff and her apartment, you know, the apartment and stuff. She was talking about like moving up in life and, and, and not so much career, but money. Like, how can I generate more money? And her plan was to make sure that her brothers were going to be okay. And that her parents wouldn't have to worry about Robin, like as they got older. And so she was at 21, she was already thinking about that. I want to know that my brother's okay. And, and she felt pretty confident about Brian. But she definitely wanted wanted them to know that she was going to be by their side. And that Robin, for sure, was going to be taken care of. She was probably a good 10 years ahead of her time. That's kind of who she was as a sister. She definitely loved her brothers. Lisa worked at McDonald's. And she encouraged Caroline to work there, too. Here's how Caroline describes Lisa on the job. She was good at her job. Like for as young as she was, she was good. And, and, and she had attention to detail and, and she was efficient. Like she was a quick learner where I wasn't, I couldn't get the cash. Right. I was, I couldn't do my math. Right. I, you know, and I was more the person that as I got to know the regulars, I just wanted to talk to them. Like, how are you doing? What are you up? She's like, you, no, you can't check in like so I mean it just I knew it wasn't the place for me but for her it it she shone like she really shined bright there and she was fast she was like this little squirrel that was like everywhere she kind of went and I think she made a good manager because everybody loved her and 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 she knew the regulars and they loved her too 
she knew at a young age, I think, that something about McDonald's, it fit for her. But she just was like, I'm done. I, I know where I'm going in life. It just, yeah, it just kind of suited her. Lisa ages out of care. She leaves behind her foster home, her teen years, and McDonald's as well. She moved on from McDonald's and then she was in the bar scene. Like she was waitressing from what I can remember. And then she was, she ended up snapping her ankle. That's what happened. She went, I used to get mad at her for these heels. Like she, she could walk on these heels and I always would get mad at her and be like, you can't go dancing and drinking in those heels. You're going to step off a curb and break yourself. I'm going to be so mad at you. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> um, and so she was actually going to a call center. So that was going to be a whole new kind of adventure for her because she'd never kind of done that sort of stuff. She was go, 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 really fast paced environments. And in speaking to her when she was telling me about this new job, it was it definitely was going to bring forth, I think, different skills in her that she was going to use later on in life. So it her hurting her ankle, was that around that time? Or? Mm-hmm. OK, yeah. Right. So, so, um, did she break it? Um, she in a cast? I don't, can't really recall actually. And I I remember she called me from the hospital. The day after I meet with Carol Ann, I get a text from her. She's been in touch with Lisa Marie's other foster sister, Becky. They have come up with a list of small things they remember about Lisa they want me to share. Lisa loved pizza with tomato and green peppers. She rarely ate stuff like that because she was a health nut. She ran to keep fit. She loved it. She totally would have loved Fitbit. Lisa loved Skittles, but not the yellow ones, and would throw them out. Becky says Lisa's all-time favorite band was Smashing Pumpkins, and she loved the song Tonight Tonight. Lisa was a vegetarian. She put lots of pepper in her ketchup on her fries. When they were sick together, they would watch City of Angels and eat tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches. Becky and Lisa used to love playing pool together. Lisa wore Tommy Hilfiger perfume. Lisa and Becky went to a silver chair concert and Nickelback opened for them. Lisa knew a lot of people in the music and acting industry. Her favorite color was lime green. She lived vibrant. These are small details, and they don't explain what happened the night Lisa disappeared. But they are huge for me in edging closer to understanding who Lisa was in life. Driving home, I reflect on my conversation with Carol Ann. I think about her description of Lisa, a pretty, feminine young woman who loved her perfume, makeup, jewelry, dressing up. If you encounter Lisa's picture online, it's probably the first thing you notice about her. Lisa is pretty. She's very pretty. And I wonder if her beauty was what attracted someone to her that night, someone who meant her harm. Carol Ann also described Lisa as overly confident, This is something I'll hear again and again from those who knew Lisa well. And then there is the mention of an injured ankle, 
Was Lisa still in some pain that night? No one has ever said she was on crutches that evening. But did a recent injury leave her weak, less likely, perhaps, to walk away or run if she needed to? I've also learned Lisa was in foster care. Young people who age out of foster care are vulnerable. We know this through a series of reports after high-profile deaths in this part of Canada. The current reports show high rates of suicide and drug overdoses. Also, a disproportionate number of Indigenous youth aging out of care end up dead. And the reasons for that are deeply rooted in Canada's painful history with Indigenous people. As I learn more about Lisa's story, themes of intergenerational trauma emerge. The Lisa Caroline knew in foster care is a city girl, and she is also Indigenous. Lisa's mother and grandparents attended residential school. I wonder to what extent the trauma and stress of those experiences was passed on through the generations. Carol Ann talks about how people assume if you're in foster care, then you're either a bad kid or you're from a bad family. But life can be more complicated than that. People are more complicated than that. Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus. Lisa Marie's mother's family is from the Tlaoquit First Nation on the west coast of Vancouver Island, near Tofino. It's one of the most beautiful places in Canada. It was named by Spanish explorers who arrived here in the late 1700s. But Indigenous people have called the ancient rainforest home for centuries before that. Lisa Marie comes from a prominent Indigenous family here. Her grandpa was the elected chief for 13 terms. He is a giant here. And I'm hoping to interview him on this trip. But this morning, it's Lisa's grandma and auntie I've come to meet. There are about 1,200 Tlaoquit First Nations people. Today, the band runs a large resort and is investing in multiple renewable energy projects. I meet up with Lisa Marie's auntie, Carol Frank, and her grandma, Cecilia Arnett, at the daycare where Carol is the manager. They're sitting in the front room waiting for us to arrive. The daycare is on a reserve surrounded by towering old growth trees, spruce, cedar, and hemlock. Some of them are over a thousand years old, but the buildings here are new. So is the daycare. Outside sits a lovely new playground and off in the distance, the roar of the wild Pacific waves. I get an uneasy welcome from Carol and Cecilia. They're polite, but they have the look of people who know painful questions are coming. Both are small in stature. Carol is stylish with a sharp, short haircut and fashionable glasses. Cecilia is in her 80s, 
but has the spark and the energy of a much younger woman. And it's such a gorgeous, shiny morning, I'm reluctant to break the spell by beginning the interview I've come here for. But after a time, we begin to talk about Lisa Marie. Uh, my name is Carol Frank from Cloquit, and I am Lisa's auntie. I'm Celia Arnett. I'm Lisa's grandma. I'm Cloquit too. Uh, my name is Mawasup. My dad named me at his feast day. Did Lisa have a, uh, an indigenous no. name? She didn't. No, she grew up in the city, and I am. Yeah. No, unfortunately, she didn't. Yeah, I wish she had. Eh? Uh, Lisa was born and raised in Nanaimo, BC, and she grew up there all her life with her mom and dad and her two younger brothers. So she she lived was pretty well a city girl. Do you uh, do you remember much of Lisa as a child? Do you remember what she was like? Oh yes, uh, I have lots of memories. I was there when she was a little baby. When I went to see my daughter, I saw her grow up. I visited them a lot, so I got to know them quite well. Uh, I used to have fun with them. Take him shopping to the mall and. Uh, she's really a bubbly girl. She's really happy, go lucky girl. Yeah, she she could be first stepping too. <laughs> she started walking when she was eight months old, and she grew up around her family. And but she was uh like she really enjoyed school and sports, and she loved the Vancouver Canucks. When my dad. Uh, Lisa's grandpa brought Lisa to a Canucks game in Vancouver. So that really inspired Lisa. She wanted to be a sports announcer when when she got older. Could you describe Lisa as a child or as a young girl, uh, like what she looked like? Just give us a little bit of a picture of her. Um, She was a petite girl, very pretty. Um, she was uh, half First Nations and half Caucasian. So she was, yeah, she was a really, really pretty girl and had a lot of friends. And She always dressed really nice. She was very fashionable. Yeah, she looked at herself very well. And very cheerful. We had to go take her shopping with me and go to lunches and we used to have fun together and I. It was good memories, yeah. She never demanded anything. She just said, if I got her something, she'd say, thank you, Grandma. Yeah, those are my memories. Yeah. You know, as she got older, was a teenager and kind of on the cusp of adulthood, what what were her interests then? What did she like to do? As she got older, I didn't see her as much because she was busy with her friends. She went out with her friends quite a bit, birthday parties, and yeah. she moved on her own when she was about nineteen. Yeah, 
Yeah, so she moved into her own apartment, but she lived right next door to her parents' house. So it was, Mm -hmm. my sister described it as a revolving door, like she'd always be in and out of there, like going to have dinner with them or breakfast with them and just let them know what she was up to. Like if she was going out with friends, she'd check in with her parents. Oh, she was a beautiful young lady. Uh, every time I saw her, she was always dressed up so beautifully. Her, her hair was long, and she always looked graceful to me, very uh, sophisticated, you might say. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she. I, I've never seen her out of uh, out of place. Or, yeah, she was a beautiful young lady. Very, she looked like her mother. Yeah. Oh, the last time I saw her before she went to missing, I asked her, "Do you really know your mom's side of the family?" I said, "You have to get to know them because they all love you." She said, "I know them, Grandma. I know I don't see them." And my dad, her great grandpa, loved Lisa. So I told her, Grandpa's always asking Rich Grandpa, he wants to have a picture taken with you before he dies. So she says, okay, let's make a date, Grandma. Next time you're in town, we'll go pick up Rich Grandpa and I'll have my picture taken with him. She says, okay. I think with her being a city girl too, it's a lot different than living, like for us living on the reserve here. Like we, we know, like we get to experience the culture in our communities. But with Lisa growing up her whole life in the city, she never got that experience at at all. She'd come home and uh, visit my mom because my mom lived on an island. So she, her, whenever her, whenever they got a chance, they would go to my mom's island and visit and do fishing, like fishing on the dock and, yeah, I got pictures of her. She said she birch. Her and her brother. I got pictures of them. I got lots of nice memories. Yeah, beautiful. Think about it all the time at home. One of the first things I hear from Carol and Cecilia is that reminder that Lisa Marie had a foot in two worlds. Lisa Marie's mother is Indigenous. She came from this place. But Lisa's father, Don, is not. Lisa Marie did not grow up with her Indigenous family and culture. She is a city girl. That city, Nanaimo, is only about a two-hour drive from the Tleokwit Reserve, but it might as well be on a different planet. I spend more time talking with Carol and Cecilia. They were right to be cautious about my coming. Before I leave, my questions bring them to tears. Over the years, I've learned something about reporting on tragic, painful experiences. These days, it's called trauma-informed journalism. I want to handle these interviews with great care, and I hope that my intrusive questions have been as sensitively handled as possible. Lisa's family want to talk about Lisa. They've invited me here. But as I drive away... I still feel some guilt for hurting them. 
I've brought my family here with me on this journey. We spend a relaxing evening on the beach. There's a campfire, there's s'mores, and my dog plays in the wild Pacific waves. As I watch other young families at the beach, I think of Carol Ann and her kids. Lisa would have been at an age now where she might have had a family of her own. This beach belongs to her people. She should be here. The next morning, I head into Tofino Town to meet Lisa's grandpa, Chief Moses Martin. Today, this coastal community is a thriving tourist hub. But it was once ground zero for an environmental battle that drew activists from up and down the coast and across the country. Moses was a leader in the so-called War in the Woods here in the 1980s. He stood along other Indigenous people and environmentalists and beat back a logging giant to protect the old-growth forest. Thousands of people took part in what was the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Hundreds were arrested. As a result of the Tribal Park Declaration, the old-growth forest that exists on Mears Island remains standing to this day and protected for future generations. But I'm not here to talk about Moses' involvement in that monumental achievement. I'm here to talk about his granddaughter, Lisa Marie. Hello. Hi. Hi. I am on the hunt for Moses. Oh. Am I in the right place? I'm not here. His wife, Carla, is at the front desk talking to clients. Moses, can you do a four o'clock free rush today? Moses is the co-owner of Clayquot Wild. He takes tourists out to see whales, hot springs, and to learn about the culture. On this particular day, there's an English couple in to book a bear-watching adventure. Moses, a man in his 80s, will later this afternoon head out into the wild to look for bears. My name is Moses Martin, and I'm currently the... Um, like the chief of the tribe that I come from. And uh, and I've done that for quite a number of years. I think I'm in my 13th term as a chief for this tribe. And uh, yeah, I've been involved in all kinds of things at the political table with both Canada and the province and then the forest industry. And uh, Grandfather of uh, lots of kids. Uh, Lisa was one of them. Uh, um, but she's gone now since 2002. Yeah, yeah, it's something that you can never wish on anybody else in the end. Uh, still leaves a big hollow spot in your heart when you think about Lisa. And uh, she was only 21 when she when missing. So. Mm -hmm. Now, Lisa was very young, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, did she did she get a chance to learn much about the indigenous part of her life? No, and and uh, I was feel uh, partly responsible for that because I was in that I was involved in that war in the woods, and and so uh, as a result of that, uh, people were leaving here to, to look for work in other other areas and my daughter was one of them. She ended up in, in Nanaimo. So never really um had a chance to uh 
teach you much of the our cultural ways and traditional knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And, um, when I was talking to Carol, Carol would be your, your daughter, daughter, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Carol was talking about how the hope is still there to bring mm -hmm. Lisa home so yeah. mm -hmm. that, you know, there could be maybe a traditional uh, mm -hmm. ceremony for yeah. her. Yeah, yeah, And this, this is a song that I would sing at that uh, if we ever brought her home in that way. And then uh, I composed this song and then... Uh, like I said, it's a prayer song to her mother. Beat of the drum is the heartbeat of her ancestors. So, yeah. And uh, just I'll explain a little bit about what the song is about. And then, and, and we humbly ask our mother to be close to us today. And, and, uh, that uh, we ask our mother to uh, give us the strength to uh, deal with whatever problem that we're having and, and also that uh, uh, we all have a choice in life and in the path that we want to go down so uh, ask our mother to uh, um, and I ended with like uh, coat, like coat, which means thank you in our language. Uh, we all have many things to be thankful for in uh, our, uh, each other and grandkids and and life itself. So we're all should always be grateful for those things. So. And those are all part of our teachings. And I'll sing this song, and, and uh, I uh, pass it on to my grandchildren, and and, and hopefully, uh, when they begin to understand the language, that uh, they'll use it as a guide in their spiritual way. Oh, 
Moses and Lisa Marie's grandmother, Cecilia, attended residential schools. So did Lisa's mom. If you're unfamiliar with Canada's residential school system, there's really only one thing you need to know. The goal was to kill the Indian in the child. Forced assimilation through the government of the day and various churches. The last residential school to operate in B.C. was the one Lisa Marie's family members attended. Christie, the Kakawas Indian Residential School on Mears Island. It was run from 1900 until 1983 by the Roman Catholic Church. 1983. The legacy of the residential schools is far from ancient history. Lisa Marie would have been a toddler around that time. Lisa's story is a classic cold case true crime tale. Beautiful young woman goes missing under mysterious circumstances. And it's also a much deeper story with an historic backdrop of residential schools and intergenerational trauma. In getting to know Lisa's friends and family for this podcast, I now follow them on social media. Shortly after my interview with Moses, a picture appears of Moses cradling a new baby, a great-grandchild. It's a stunningly beautiful image, Moses looking down lovingly at a baby girl dressed in a red velvet dress for Christmas. The caption says something about how loved the new grandchild is. And I think about Moses and that hole in his heart he described in talking about Lisa how he carries a faded, cracked picture of Lisa in his wallet, and how he will never replace it because it's the last one she gave him. I think about Moses and how he longs to play his beautiful song for Lisa Marie when she is finally returned home. Coming up in Episode 2. 
Lisa's father, Don Young, on the night his daughter vanished. Lisa was going out with her friends for somebody's birthday, and she came over, and I was watching a hockey game or something. We, she, her and I were really close, so she hung out for a while, and we had a beer, and she said, okay, I'm going out with my friends, and that was about it. At what point in that morning did you did it occur to you that something was wrong? Well, we tried phoning your phone a bunch of times. It wasn't unusual for her to sleep in if they did a night of partying, right? You know, at that age. So, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, we didn't worry about it too much. And Joanne and I went and got some takeout for breakfast. And we went and sat down at Departure Bay Beach, where we like to go sometimes, and just checked out the scenery and we still couldn't get her. And then we started getting worried. I mean, sometimes people's phones, if they're dead, they go to voicemail right away. I can't remember what happened then, though. I think I don't think that was the case. I think it rang and didn't answer. I think. Yeah, we started getting pretty worried, and then we phoned the police, and they told us to wait for a day, and we said, no, uh, this isn't right, and they came over. And they gave us, uh, you know, don't worry about it. Just wait till she's probably with her friends, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we called back and we said, because no. we were tight. They, she didn't go a day without phoning us. You know. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Where is Lisa? Island Crime, Season 1. 